We continue this week our journey through the Sermon on the Mount with the next two extensions found in chapter 5. Last week we looked at the first three and saw how they dealt with the way our anger and jealousy causes us to destroy ourselves and our relationships. What matters most is what is in the heart, because who we are and how we move through the world comes from the inside out. Today we hear two stories about how we need to view the other people in our community. These two extensions are a prohibition against oaths. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. And the second one, which we know as the command to turn the other cheek. Both of these extensions are about the importance of human dignity. Throughout the Bible, God is often trying to restore the wholeness of the people in the midst of the story, often against the desires and wills of the other humans. We see the underdog, the outcast, the little brother, the blind, the ones in captivity restored to their fullness in the eyes of God. My favorite story along this path is that of Hagar and Ishmael. When Sarah and Abraham believed she was barren, she gave up on God and convinced Abram to have a child with his servant Hagar, because Sarah and Abram believed he deserved a son to continue his family line. We're going to set that part of the story aside for today. Over time, this adventure is successful, and Hagar has a son, Ishmael. Sarai is consumed with jealousy, which was entirely predictable. See the previous extension of not coveting our neighbor or committing adultery. And so God blesses her with the son Isaac, which God had always promised to her. After Isaac is born, Hagar and Ishmael are driven from the home into the desert with only the barest minimum of rations, and so doing, removing them from them any humanity. You cannot drive a mother and her child into the desert to die if you see them as fully loved, fully beloved children of God. God had other plans. And so God quickly restored to Hagar and her son their dignity and their hope. Now the Bible and the Quran differ slightly in the telling of the story, but both agree Hagar and Ishmael had run out of their food and burst into tears. God sent an angel who opened her eyes and showed her a well. The angel extends the first promise to Hagar of restoration, saying, What humans meant for evil, I mean for good, and tells Ismael he will be also be the father of a great nation. Sarah and Abraham intended to strip those people, Hagar and Ishmael, of all humanity, all dignity, by driving them into the desert and breaking their oaths and promises to them. God restored these essential elements of life pride, dignity, self-respect, and honor to those who were deemed worthless. Which leads us to the two extensions today. First, Jesus tells the people not to invoke the name of God as a way of making a promise, or your words seem more real or more sincere. The commandment in the Old Testament is to not bear false witness, which is not simply about refraining from lying or from testifying correctly under oath. Instead, the Old Testament has a deeper understanding of this prohibition. Instead, the rabbis tell us this commandment, do not bear false witness. It's about promising to do something and then not doing it. This is about the gulf between what we say and the actions we show. The most harmful saying in all of parenting is the one, do as I say, not as I do. 
I remember a friend who taught kinder music sharing a story of a time when a child, maybe four or five, hit another kid in her class. It wasn't a serious thing, but she wanted to raise it to his father's attention, so she told him. He turned to his kid, cuffed him on the back of the head, and said, We do not hit. It's hard to tell a child not to hit when you're in the midst of hitting them. Jesus is telling us here that one of the few things we can control in our lives is the words which come out of our mouths and what actions we do with our bodies. As we'll see more in the next extension, our words should match our actions and what we do with our bodies tells the world about who we are in Christ. There is a second assumption bound up in the prohibition against evoking God's name in an oath. That's when we swear by God or do the Scarlet O'Hara thing where we shout, As God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. We are making an assumption God is about to endorse and agree with whatever we are about to say. And this is a dangerous assumption. God is at the core a mystery. And even the name we say when we swear by God is a mystery. I am who I am. Letting your yes be your yes and your no be your no without the need for extra moral collateral is a way of showing your respect for yourself and for the other person in the conversation and your respect for God. God is not a toy or a slogan to be bandied about, but a powerful living being with agency. So we better be sure when we invoke God's name, we are doing it with reverence and with fear and with trembling. I went through a WWE phase and Stove Cold and Steve Austin used to walk around with a sign saying Austin 316 while yelling and shouting and doing other crude things, which gave me the heebie-jeebies even then. But it reminds me that we need to be careful about invoking God to back up our behavior and beliefs unless we are for darn sure that we are going to follow through and that God's going to agree with what we just said. Living up to our own values is an important part of building our self-esteem and creating a confident, positive view of ourselves and others. There are few things we regret so much as what we had planned to do and then didn't do. And not bearing false witness is about promising to do something and then doing it. This is about there being no gulf between the words we say and the actions we do. We should be able to trust ourselves and others should be able to trust us because we are who we say we are, predictable, reliable, without having to back ourselves up with a promise that God likes us to. Our actions and words will show God's influence in our lives. Which brings us to the more complicated of the two commandments today. This is known in Latin as the lex talanus, or the rule against violence. The ancient law, which is an eye for an eye, was ubiquitous in the ancient Near East. Every society, from the Babylonians to the Egyptians to the Romans and Greeks, had a similar law. And frankly, the concept of an eye for an eye sounds awfully barbaric to us today. You don't respond to violence with violence, or you're supposed to, at least among proper society. But the literature of the time when this law was introduced indicates the eye for the eye law was an improvement. This is a law designed to prevent the escalation of violence and to limit vengeance. You can see a situation where someone loses an eye in a construction accident, so he goes back and kills the guy who did it. His brothers then get riled up and go back and attack the first guy's family, and before you know it, it's the Hatfields and McCoys, and you started a generational feud over a stolen pig. Eye for an eye was a limiting principle. A gross one, but a limiting one. An eye, and only an eye, for an eye. 
but this was never really practiced in Israel. Israel instead established a monetary reward policy for the injury, very similar to the one we use today, because, they said, no two eyes are exactly alike, and so you can never actually equal out the injury. Jesus, then, is not talking about physical violence or the proper response when someone attacks you violently. Second Temple Judaism has an extensive system of justice which dealt with such attacks. Instead, Jesus is addressing what we should do when we are embarrassed or humiliated in public. Being slapped with an open hand is intended to humiliate the person being slapped. Here in this story, a right-handed person is slapping someone in the face, so it's even more humiliating because they are doing it with the back of their hand. Jesus here is addressing what you should do when someone denies your humanity and attempts to say you are less than you are. You are so small you can be slapped with the back of someone's hand. The lawsuit and being forced to carry someone's luggage are extensions of the same principle. It's an attempt to humiliate by removing your clothes which protect you and forcing you to go where you do not want to go. Tomorrow is Juneteenth, which is a new holiday for some of us. But it celebrates the day the last slave knew they were free when a battalion of U.S. soldiers showed up in southern Texas two years after the slaves were officially freed to notify the last people held in slavery that they were, in fact, free. Their humanity had been restored. The grossest part of slavery, among the many gross things, was the way the people who were held in slavery were removed of their humanity. They were stripped of their clothes and given other clothes to wear, which were granted by their owners as they saw fit. They were renamed with one name, which they did not choose and which symbolized their subjugation. They were hit and slapped, humiliated. I was watching the PBS show Finding Their Roots the other night, and Leslie Odom Jr. was the person researching their genealogy when the host pulled a slave schedule where the people were given a monetary value and listed by age and physical characteristics to help establish the value of their owner's household. There were no names. The slave schedule did not list their value as a human, but as property. And Leslie Odom Jr.'s ancestor's value was listed as mother and child, $950. Their humanity had been taken, and each of the prohibitions Jesus lists this morning inflicted upon them, their clothes taken, being forced to work against their will, being slapped in humiliation. And so we take tomorrow to remember the beginnings of the restoration of their dignity and their humanity. Jesus lived out the words he said here. When he was humiliated and stripped and forced to carry his cross, he did so, standing up straight in the face of his oppressors to hold on to his own humanity. And when the descendants of those slaves began to stand up for their own humanity, they did so with sit-ins and marches not violence. Defending ourselves and returning violence for violence only escalates the problem. Excusing our own behavior because someone else did something worse denies our own responsibility for letting our yes be our yes and our no our no. Jesus reminds us to remember we are beloved children of God and we are more worth more than what others try to force us to be. No one can make us respond in violence. No one can make you respond with hate. No one can force you to continue this cycle. You can choose dignity and self-respect and respond as Jesus responded, not by backing down or being weak, but by refusing to let someone make you less than you are. 
These extensions are not about protecting yourself, but refusing to allow others to take your dignity or to set the terms by which you have to live and act. You can choose to stand up for yourselves and others, and in so doing, show them the well in the middle of the desert where God begins to restore what others have taken away. Your yes can be your yes, even when others try to make it your no, and you can choose to restore dignity to others in yourself through your words and your actions. God is always on the side of truth and dignity for all people. But I have found when that I don't believe that God is speaking, it's not because God isn't speaking. It's because God is saying words that I don't want to hear. Often God is calling us into places that are frightening because we are uncertain of what that future is. We know how to do this future. Okay. <laughs> 
I was going to say, well, but I think for most of us, the truth is, okay, we're making it day to day. We know how to make this work. And so when God is calling us into something different, into something new, into a vision of a future, it's a little scary because we are uncertain of who we will be and where we will go. And so it is not that God isn't speaking. It's that we are not listening. Not really listening. Not Peter on the rooftop listening. Not Cornelius in the nighttime listening. We are not truly open to the voice of God. We are not ready to hear the voice of God, to see the vision which descends from heaven for us, for our future. We don't want to hear it. That future makes us uncomfortable. Or it's the opposite direction of where we thought we wanted to go. Or it's an unwanted future because it brings pain and loss. But that doesn't mean God isn't speaking into that future. Period. We simply have to acknowledge that we are in between. We are really good at pretending things are the way they used to be. It takes us a long time to realize that we have changed, that our life has changed, that the world has changed beyond what we are able to handle in the way that we used to, with the skills that we have already in our pocket. We are like the proverbial ostrich, with our heads in the sand of what we know. But the truth is, most of us are in some form of a liminal space all of the time. Whether big moments or small moments, we are in between. The past that was and the future that will be. We can pretend it isn't happening. We can ignore the future that God has planned for us, or at least drag our feet kicking and screaming into it. But in my experience, if God has a vision for you and a plan for you and a future for you, it's going to happen. God didn't ask whether you were going to be happy about it. So we need to find ourselves in this liminal place to recognize that we are in a thin place between the world and God, between earth and heaven. That if we let ourselves, we will find ourselves on the rooftop, gazing into the night sky, open for a word from God. God is speaking. We just have to be brave enough to hear it. 